You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. I ask you to please open with me in your Bibles to the letter to the Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. If, if you like to follow along on your phone, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app just because if you go in there and you sign in and then you go to the menu and you go to live events, you can actually find all the stuff that's on the screen and some more stuff. It's stuff that you can share. You can take notes in there. It's just a very good app where you can follow along and you can see all the text. And it would be a good one this morning for you to follow along in your Bible or on your, on your app on your phone because we're going to be covering some really some good text, but you're going to want to be reading it along with me as we study it. So on Sunday mornings, we are studying through the book of Hebrews. Our study, our series is called An Anchor for the Soul. And I love the book of Hebrews. I hope that you will love it too as we're studying it because this is one of the greatest books in the Bible. This is a book which is all about Jesus. It's all about considering who Jesus is and what Jesus did and what that means for every area of our lives. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Hebrews chapters 3. And four, beginning in chapter three, verse seven. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, uh, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 4, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that truly it is living and active. It gets to the very heart of who we are. It gets to the very core of our thoughts and intentions. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, through this study. Lord, would you speak to us a word from you? And Lord, as we hear you speaking to us today, as this text reminds us, may we not harden our hearts, but may we respond to what you are speaking to us this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So there's something I've noticed in talking to people, and maybe you've noticed it too. It's, it's something cultural here where we live uh, in America, and maybe even in Colorado, but here, here's the thing I've noticed. When someone says to you, or when you say to someone, you know, you say, hey, how are you? What's new? What have you been up to lately? One of the most common responses that people give, or that we give, is, oh, dude, I am super busy. I've just been slammed. Like, I am so busy, just so busy, right? We live in a culture that values hard work, which is a good thing. But the other side of that coin is that we also live in a culture that encourages overwork. We live in a culture that encourages 
workaholism, really. And so if someone asks us how we're doing or what we've been up to, we want to make sure they know that we haven't just been sitting around doing nothing, watching Netflix all day. So we want them to know that we've been busy. We've been doing stuff. We've got places to go. We've been working. We've been keeping ourselves busy. We've got stuff to do, things to do, people to see. We wear our busyness. It's like a badge of honor that we wear on ourselves. Oh, yeah, busy. Pat me on the back for it because I've been busy, right? So we talk about it all the time. We want people to know about it. So we say, oh, you know, how, how are you doing? We say, oh, man, I am slammed. I am busy. And then the other person says, yeah, man, me too. Super busy. And we, we both kind of pat each other on the back. Good job. Keep him busy. Not wasting your time. And, and on the one hand, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. We are busy. We are super busy. We live in the most busy, overworked, and workaholic culture maybe in all of history. There are a few reasons why this is increasingly so. So let me tell you what a few of those reasons are. One of the reasons is technology. We, we live in this age of technology, and technology has made things more efficient. So things in the past that you used to have to wait for, you no longer have to wait for those things. And so that means that you can do more stuff. You can say yes to more things. And the other thing is it means that you can take your work with you wherever you go. And that's a double-edged sword. Like on the one hand, it's awesome. It's awesome because it frees us up to go more places and do more things because we're not tied to our desks and our offices. But on the other hand, right, the other side of that is that you can't escape your work either. It's always on you. Your phone is like a leash that you wear, and you're always getting notifications. I remember, you know, not that long ago, I climbed a 14er with a, a guy, and we were on top of this mountain. Like, we've been hiking for like six hours. And on top of the mountain, he gets a call from work, and he's like, sorry, I got to take this. And it's like a 30-minute phone call where he's instructing somebody from work. Now, let me ask you, is that a good thing? Or a bad thing. I think you could argue it both ways. Like in one way, it's awesome because he got to go on that hike. He didn't have to stay at work. On the other hand, you can't escape your work either because of technology. So technology has made work a more constant and domineering factor in our lives. Another factor in this that we live in such a, a busy and work-oriented, workaholic, overworked culture is, is a cultural reason, right? So in traditional societies, in traditional cultures, your value, your identity came from being part of a family or part of a community. You were somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's wife, somebody's husband. You were a part of a community. But in our modern Western society, that's not where we get our value. We don't get our value from being part of a family or a community. We get our value from our personal accomplishments and achievements. And so in our society, it doesn't matter who your family is. All that matters is what you personally have achieved and accomplished. That is what gives you your identity and your value. And so because of that, our relationship with work has totally changed. We, view, uh, we no longer view work just as something that we do. Now our work defines who we are fundamentally. And, and so it's an integral part of who we, how we conceive of who we are. And there's, that puts a huge burden on us. Do you see that? It puts a huge burden on us to get out there and make something of ourselves and do something to produce and achieve and accomplish because that's what gives us our value. And as a result of all these things... We are tired. We are tired. On the one hand, we love to be busy, but on the other hand, all this busyness is exhausting. And, and as a culture, we are just exhausted. It's not only physical exhaustion either, by the way. It's mental exhaustion. It's emotional exhaustion. And it's also 
spiritual, spiritual tiredness. Now think about this. If you lay down your work for a day, you decide, I'm not going to work today. I'm going to set my work down. I'm going to go do something else. Isn't there that nagging voice in your head the whole time that says, you're falling behind. You're falling behind. You're getting behind. Don't forget about all that stuff that you have to do when you get home, when you get back to your work. I mean, it's just going to be more now that you took this time off to the point where even when you try to relax, you're stressed out. In fact, you're probably more stressed out when you try to relax because you have this nagging feeling of all the stuff that you need to do right now and you should be doing anyway. And we have this drive to do more and produce more and achieve more and accomplish more. And that's why this text from Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, is incredibly relevant to us. In fact, there's probably no group of people who needed this message more than our society, more than us today. Because here in this section, the writer uses the word rest 12 times. So obviously, that's, that's the theme of what he's talking about. Rest 12 times. Now, this letter was written to a group of people who were incredibly stressed out. That's the thing to know about this. These people who this letter was written to, they were stressed out because of what was going on in their lives. They were facing troubles, facing difficulties and challenges and uncertainties. Maybe some of you can relate to that yourselves. And as a result, they were so stressed out that they were seriously just thinking about giving up, just throwing in the towel and being done. They were at the end of themselves and they were very much tempted to just give up on everything and to give up on Christianity and give up on Jesus. Because with all of these troubles, with all these difficulties in their lives, they were stressed out, they were weary, and they were exhausted. And so what did they need? What they needed was rest. That's the same thing that we need today as well. If anyone has ever needed to hear this message, it's us. The title of today's message is Rest for the Weary. And there are three things that we learn in this section, three things that we're going to look at here in this section on the topic of rest. First of all, we're going to talk about why rest is more than we think it is. Rest is more than we think it is. We're going to see why in just a second. Secondly, we're going to talk about the kind of rest that relaxing cannot give you. So there's a kind of rest that no amount of relaxing can give you. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the strife of entering into rest. The strife of entering into rest. Okay, so let's begin by talking about why rest is more than we think it is. This section is dealing with a biblical concept, a biblical teaching, a biblical theme of the Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath is simply the Hebrew word for rest. Hebrew word for rest. In fact, keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Now I want you to think about that. Keeping the Sabbath, in other words, taking a day of rest, is one of the Ten Commandments, along with stuff like don't murder people and don't steal and don't lie and don't commit adultery. In that same list, we're told to rest. Do you understand? To take a day off of work every week and spend that day resting and worshiping. Do you know what that means? Think about that. What that means is that God is putting overwork He's putting workaholism over work in the same category as lying, adultery, worshiping idols, robbery, and killing people, right? So we need to take note of that because what that means is that rest is a much bigger deal than we tend to think it is. And I, 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 I need to hear this message myself. I am that guy who always says, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's like my mantra. You can ask my wife. So I need to hear this message as well. 
if, the, if the, taking rest is one of the Ten Commandments, along with not committing adultery and not killing people and not lying and not stealing and things like that, and not worshiping idols, then that means that rest is a lot more important than we tend to think it is. So what is rest all about? In this section, the writer takes us back to the Old Testament and he shows us two key biblical concepts about rest. Two key biblical concepts about rest. And here's what they are. Number one, rest is about freedom. Rest is about freedom. And number two, rest is about satisfaction. It's about satisfaction. So first of all, let's talk about this. Rest is about freedom. Throughout this section, four times he quotes from Psalm 95. Psalm 95. So when you see those quotations right there, especially in chapter 3, and then it repeated again in chapter 4, those are quotations from Psalm 95. Now Psalm 95 is recounting, it's telling the story of how the children of Israel were in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt where they were slaves. They came out of Egypt and God was leading them to the promised land, but to get to the promised land they had to go through the wilderness. And it wasn't a walk in the park. There were a lot of difficulties along the way. And during that time, as they faced those difficulties, there was a time when the children of Israel turned away from God. They turned their backs on God. They had been slaves in Egypt. They had cried out to God to set them free. God had heard their cries. He came to their rescue. He set them free from slavery, and he led them to the promised land. But of course, getting to the promised land wasn't a walk in the park. There were a lot of difficulties along the way. And as they faced those difficulties, there came a time when instead of obeying God and trusting his promises and obeying him by faith, they decided, you know what? We're going to turn our backs on God. We're not going to trust God. We're not going to obey God anymore. And they did their own thing. It was as if they had completely forgotten what God had done for them in saving them, and they turned their backs on him, and they said, what have you ever done for us? Why would we trust in you? And the writer brings this up. Why? Why? Because he's looking at these people who he's writing to, and he's saying, guys, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. This is you. This is the exact same thing that you're doing right now. You're facing hardship and difficulty. But rather than fixing your eyes on Jesus, rather than trusting in God's promises, rather than walking in faith, you're thinking about giving up and turning your backs on God. That's exactly what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. And look where, they, where it got them. Don't do that. Look what happened to them as a result of it. Don't make that same mistake. See, in the wilderness, these people thought that if they stopped following God, if they, if they became their own lords and their own masters, then they would have rest. But actually, just the opposite happened. As they did that, they actually lost rest. They, did ha they had no rest. And the same is true for us. You know, sometimes I hear people say things like, well, you know, there's, I got a lot of stuff going on in my life right now. I, I'm, things in my life are so hard right now. Nothing's going the way I want, so... I don't think I'm going to be a Christian anymore. And you're like, whoa, how'd you get there? Like, how'd you make that jump, right? Like, hang on a second. How is that going to make anything better? Like, how is not being a Christian going to solve any of your problems, right? Like, how is not being a Christian going to pay those bills? How is not being a Christian going to resolve that heartache that you're suffering? All that will happen if you turn your back on God, is that you will lose the hope that you have in Christ, which is an anchor for your soul that you especially need at times like that. But what people will usually say is, well, what I mean by that, that I, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore, 
I just mean that I'm going to take a break from being a Christian and I'm going to indulge. I'm going to indulge in this activity or in this substance or in this relationship. And I know it doesn't please God and that's why I'm saying that I'm not going to be a Christian. But I just, I want to indulge in this thing because man, I'm so stressed out. I just need a break. I just need a break. And here's the point that he's making exactly. He's saying turning away from God, indulging in those things, It will not give you the rest that you're looking for. In fact, just the opposite. You will have no rest. Now, why is that? The answer is because rest is more than we think it is. Rest is more than we think it is. See, rest isn't just the absence of conflict. It's not just the absence of difficulty. Rest is something much deeper than that. Remember the story. There was Jesus and his disciples. They were in a boat. They were on the Sea of Galilee. And this wicked storm came up. And the waves were crashing into the boat, crashing over the side of the boat. And the disciples, many of them, who had spent their entire lives on the water as fishermen, they were freaking out. They were convinced that this is the end. This is it. They're going to die. And there's Jesus. Everybody's panicking. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. He's having a snooze. Just a little afternoon. Just relaxing. The boat's rocking, waves are coming, water's filling the boat, and there's Jesus resting in the middle of this storm. And what that reminds us of, what that tells us of, what it's a picture of, is that rest is more than we think it is. See, rest is a state of being which you can have even in the midst of turmoil and hardship. Rest is a state of being that you can have even in the midst of turmoil and hardship. Psalm 95, let's go back here. It says that when the children of Israel turned away from God in the wilderness, the consequence of that was that they did not enter into God's rest. Now, the rest that it's talking about, God's rest in that context, is speaking about the land of Canaan, the promised land. They didn't enter into the promised land. That was the rest that they missed out on. In Canaan, think about Canaan. It was called God's rest. Now, in Canaan, there were still battles to be waged. There were still enemies who attacked. There were still wars that needed to be fought. But the reason why Canaan was a place of rest is because prior to coming into Canaan, the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. Now, I've never been a slave before, but there's one thing I know about slaves. They don't get a lot of days off, right? Like, they don't get a lot of holidays. And the masters in Egypt overworked them. They worked them into the dust. In Egypt, they didn't get days off. They had no weekends. In fact, one time we read in Exodus, the children of Israel asked for a couple days off and they got punished just for asking. They got given more work and then they got beaten when they couldn't do the work because it was more than they could even physically accomplish. So for the people of Israel coming to Canaan, having been slaves, now coming to Canaan as a free people who could set their own schedules, who could put limits on their work for them, that meant rest. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, God told the people of Israel, he said, remember, you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he says, therefore, the Lord has ordered that you observe the Sabbath. In other words, he's tying Sabbath observance into the fact that God brought them out of slavery. So it relates to freedom. See, for people who had never had a day off of work in their entire lives, the Sabbath wasn't a burden to keep. The Sabbath was a blessing. Like, oh, so you're commanding me to take a day off? 
Well, thank you, right? Like, that's nice. But here's the thing about Sabbath. It kept overwork and it kept workaholism in check. It meant that employers couldn't overwork their employees. It meant that us entrepreneurial types who like to work or or people who are self-employed, that it kept their workaholism in check. It didn't let them just work all the time, nonstop. So let me say this as well. I think this is an important counterpoint to this. And that is that the Bible is not anti-work. I want that to be very clear. The Bible's not anti-work. Quite the opposite. The Bible elevates work as an inherently good thing, as a virtuous thing. And the Bible actually has nothing to say about people who are lazy. The Proverbs put laziness and slothfulness in the category of wickedness. So there's nothing good about being lazy. In fact, it says that if someone is unwilling to work, then they shouldn't eat right? Not, not unable to work, but unwilling. I mean, it's saying work is good, not working, and being lazy is not good. The first time we see God, for example, in the opening chapters of the Bible, what's he doing? He's working. He's creating. He's making stuff. And when it comes to God creating man, he doesn't just speak man into existence like he does with everything else. No, he gets his hands dirty. He, our picture of God creating man is a God with dirt under his fingernails. He gets his hands dirty. He digs in the dirt and he forms man out of the dust of the earth and then breathes life into him. In other words, God is a God who works. The other thing is this. They're in paradise After he created the man and the woman, God gave them a job. And what that means is that work existed in paradise before sin and curse came into the world. In other words, work is not a curse. Work is inherently good. And the Bible calls us to think about work in terms of calling. In terms of calling that God has called us to subdue the earth, to manage it and cultivate it for the good of other people. In other words, your work matters very much. In fact, your work matters to God. And you can work in such a way that you serve God through your work, no matter what your work is. So I just want to be clear, the problem is not with work. The problem is that many of us have a tendency to let our relationship with our work get totally out of balance and out of whack. We live in a culture that encourages us to overwork. It celebrates workaholism and overwork. And the fact that the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, is one of the Ten Commandments, that tells us that a culture or a society like ours that encourages people to overwork is just as brutal and just as wrong as a society that encourages stealing or encourages adultery or encourages lying or killing. And so what this tells us about the nature of rest is that when you rest, it is a declaration of freedom. When you rest, it is a declaration of freedom. And anyone who overworks is a slave, a slave to something or to someone. But when you put your work down, it's in essence saying, I am free, I am not a slave. In other words, to rest is a revolutionary act. And so when the people of Israel, when they came into the promised land, into Canaan, and they put a limit on how much they were allowed to work, and they set aside a day for work or for for rest and for worship, that was a declaration of freedom, that we are no longer slaves. And the same is true for me and for you. When you rest, it is a declaration of freedom. It is you saying, I do not need to overwork in order to earn my identity in order to prove myself I am a free person because my identity is found in Christ and I am secure in him the other way though that rest is talked about and the Sabbath is 
talked about in the Bible, is in terms in regard to how God rested during the creation or after the creation of the world. That's mentioned here, by the way, in chapter 4, verse 4. It says, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And that aspect of rest is what I'm talking about when I say that rest is about satisfaction. See, it's interesting to consider the fact that God rested. Why did God rest? Was he tired? Did he get all tuckered out from all that creating stuff, right? Was he tired emotionally? Was he tired physically? Of course not. God doesn't get tired. The Bible even says that. God is not a man that he should get tired. We get tired. But here's what the Bible's saying. That God rested even though he wasn't tired. And that is a pattern for us for why we should rest too. So then why did God rest even though he wasn't tired? If you go back to the story of creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, especially Genesis chapter 2, you'll see that the reason God rested was because he was satisfied. He was satisfied. See, God could have just kept on creating more stuff. I mean, I always think you created a duck-billed platypus, he could have put a duck-bill on some other stuff too, right? I mean, you could have all kinds of stuff with duck-bills on it. I'm sure he could have been even more creative, could have kept on going, making more stuff. But yet at one point, he, he looked at what he created and he said, it is good. And even though he could have done more, he stopped. Now, I don't know, maybe you're like me. Now, I personally, I like to work. I, lo- I love working. I enjoy it. I don't get tired. I, in fact, I, I just really like doing it. And so the question is, well, hey, if I'm not tired, then why should I take a break? Why should I rest? The reason is because rest is more than you think it is. Rest isn't about just physical or mental or emotional exhaustion. God rested, and he wasn't tired at all. The reason is because rest It's about being satisfied. It's about being content. Now, on the other hand, if you're resting all the time, then you're totally missing the point of this, right? Like if you're like, I'm super good at resting. In fact, I don't even have a job because I love resting and I've got this one nailed. In fact, I'm just going to sleep through the rest of the sermon because this is not for me, right? Well, let me me remind you of this. This, The commandment, which is about uh, keeping the Sabbath, you know what it says? Six days shall you work. Now, we work five, maybe, right? Six days shall you work, and on the seventh day you shall take a rest, right? It shall be a Sabbath unto the Lord. So the rest is more than we think it is. Rest is a declaration of freedom. Rest is a declaration of satisfaction and contentment. You could say that rest, in a way, is an act of faith. Rest is an act of faith because when you set down your work in order to rest and worship, You are saying that you trust God to provide for you. You don't only trust in your own hard work. But it's this issue of satisfaction that is particularly problematic. You see, it's this issue of satisfaction that makes rest a much more elusive thing than it might seem like at first. And that brings us to our second point, and that is the kind of rest which relaxing can't give you. Try to follow the reasoning of this section with me, if you will. It it can be a little hard to follow, so, so let's try and follow the reasoning of this argument here. He's saying this, what you need is rest. But it's not just physical rest that you need, and it's not just social rest that you need. What you need is something deeper than that. Because look, he says, God gave you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is physical rest. And God gave you the land of Canaan. That's social rest. And yet, there is still a restlessness deep down inside of you. 
which you cannot shake, which you cannot get rid of. That's what it's talking about in verses 8 and 9. Read it with me. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Joshua was the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. So he's, what he's saying is this, beyond the Sabbath day, beyond Canaan, there is still another kind of rest that you need, that I need. He said there is a truer, there is a deeper, there is an ultimate rest. This is the kind of rest that no amount of relaxing can ever give you. You could take all the vacations in the world. It won't solve this restlessness inside of you. So what is this rest that it's talking about? It is rest from what has been called the deep inner murmur of self-reproach. Let me say it again. The deep inner murmur of self-reproach. Now that's a phrase that I got from a writer named Judith Shulevitz. And in this article that she wrote, she was talking about rest. And what she was saying is that most people believe that all you need to do in order to rest is to stop working, right? You just stop working and there you go, you rested. But she says, but that's not true. Rest is more complicated than that. And what she says is because there's a deep inner rest that we need which no form of recreation can give you. You could take all the vacations in the world. You could take a month off from work and just sleep for a month. You could retire and just be independently wealthy and live in complete peace and tranquility, but none of that will still the inner restlessness inside of you, the deep inner murmur of self-reproach. What is the inner murmur of self-reproach? It's that feeling inside of you that you are not okay, that you are not okay, that you are not good enough. It's that thing inside of you that is always making you feel like you need to prove yourself to, to yourself or to other people or even to God. And that's why it says, so there remains, even beyond Canaan, even beyond taking a day off of work, there remains a deeper rest, a rest for the people of God. And then he goes on to say, for whoever has entered God's rest also rests from his works as God did from his the rest that you need is rest from your works. Not work, works with an S. So not your job, works. What, what are these works that it's talking about? Well, some people have called it the work beneath your work. The work beneath your work. The thing that you're really trying to get at through your work. Let me explain it to you. The reason that a lot of people overwork isn't because they love their job. It isn't because they necessarily need the money. The reason why a lot of people overwork is because they're looking to their work as a way to prove themselves, to prove that they have value and significance and meaning. And that's why people overwork. It's because they're desperately seeking for significance and they're looking for their job, for their vocation, for their performance to give that to them. You, you can do this with other things as well. For example, some people try to be perfect parents, right? You got Pinterest moms, Instagram dads being the perfect parents. They want everybody to see it because at the end of the day, the reason they do it isn't just because they love their kids. Now, I don't doubt that they love their kids, but there's something more to it than that, isn't there? There's a reason why they need to have everybody know about it because there's a way in which they do it because they're trying to prove themselves, Look, I really am a good person. Look, I really have justified my existence. Paul the Apostle talks about this in Philippians chapter 3, how before he became a Christian, he was incredibly religious. 
He says that he took great pride in being super zealous for his religion. But now as a Christian, he looks back at that and he says, you know what? The truth is, the reason I was so zealous about my religion, the reason I was so into it, wasn't just because I, I really love God and I love studying the scriptures. There was, a, there was a work beneath my work. There was a real reason. And, and honestly, the, the base reason for why I was doing that was because I was using religion as my desperate attempt to impress other people and to prove myself, even to prove myself to God. See, that's the work beneath our work. That, that concept of the work beneath our work, it's seen very vividly in the movie chariots of fire maybe some of you remember it's a bit of an old movie now but it's the true story of two british olympic athletes eric liddell and harold abrams true story eric liddell was a christian in fact he was a missionary to china in fact he ended up dying in a prison in china because he was a missionary now eric liddell and harold abrams they were teammates on this olympic team that went to paris and they were friends also. But the movie tells the story of how these two men approached running, they approached their sport in a very different way. Both of them were very good runners, and both of them were candidates to win medals. But the difference between them was that Harold Abrams was doing it out of a need and a desire to prove himself. And because of that, Harold Abrams was constantly stressed out. It was almost as if he even hated running. But he was a slave to it because this was the one thing in his life that he was really good at and he needed to succeed at this because if he didn't succeed at this, then who was he? He needed to prove himself and this was the way that he was doing it. So when Harold Abrams ran, he was motivated by fear, fear of failure, fear of losing his identity. And at one point in the movie, he talks about that fear and he kind of shows his hand and he reveals his heart and he says, you know, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. What a terrible way to live. What a crushing burden. Eric Liddell, on the other hand, the Christian guy, he had a completely different attitude about running. At one point in the movie, he says, look, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Not I earn his pleasure. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. For Eric Liddell, running was pure joy. Running wasn't about trying to prove himself. Running was just running. It was something that he enjoyed doing. And because of that, he was free. You see, he was free. For him, running was just running. He could enjoy it for what it was. He didn't have to win. But for Harold Abrams, running was more than just running. It wasn't just, it wasn't just running a race. It was the way in which he was trying to still the inner murmur of self-reproach. See, here's the point. Until you rest from the work beneath your work, you will never truly rest. You can sleep for days. You can take all the vacations in the world, but there's a different kind of rest that you need. You need the true Sabbath rest that no form of relaxation, no form of recreation can ever give you. So where do you find that rest? Look at the text. It's found in verses two and three. It says, for indeed, the gospel, the good news was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, as it was not met with faith in those who heard it. But we who have believed enter that rest. 
We who have believed, believed what? Believed the good news, believed the gospel. Believing the gospel brings you into that rest. You see, the land of Canaan, the Sabbath observance, all of these things were just shadows. They were just pictures. They were just foreshadowings which pointed to the true and ultimate rest, the deep rest for our souls, which is only found in and through Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, he declared, it is finished. What is finished? The work justifying you before God. He did it. He accomplished it. You don't have to do it. Because of that, you can rest. See, Jesus suffered the restlessness of the cross so that you and I could have the rest that comes from knowing that we are right with God. Jesus took all of your sin upon himself. He took the judgment for your sin. He suffered the restlessness of separation from God, the restlessness of judgment so that we could be brought into relationship with God. See, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, you can have the deep rest, which comes from knowing that when God looks at you, not only does he accept you, but he is pleased with you. You don't have to prove yourself to him. You don't have to earn his love. Just like when my kids come to me, they don't have to earn my love. I just love them. And that's how it is. If you are in Christ, you come to him and he sees you as a beloved child. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to earn his love. He's given that to you. He's given you love and favor as a gift through Jesus. And verse 10 says that when you enter that rest, that true Sabbath rest for your soul, It is at that point that you can rest from your works just as God rested from his. You can rest from your works of trying to prove yourself and justify yourself. And when you really embrace that, then you will be free. You'll be free like Eric Liddell to let running just be running. To let work just be work and parenting just be parenting rather than the things that you are using to prove yourself and justify yourself. And the way you get that rest is by believing the gospel, by trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus Christ and what he did for you. But there's one more thing before we go, and that's this, the strife of entering this rest. Now look at what it says in verse 11 of chapter 4. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Strive to enter into rest. In other words, strain, stretch yourself, strive to enter into rest. What's the writer doing here? What he's doing is he's returning to where he began. He's returning to this conversation about how the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they turned away from God and as a result, they missed out on God's rest. And the reason he brings this up is to tell these people, hey, don't make the same mistake that they made. When things got hard, they turned away from God and as a result, they didn't get to experience God's rest. But here's the thing. The rest that they missed out on was just the promised land. But you face a much bigger ordeal here. You see, if you miss out on God's rest, the rest that you will miss out on is the salvation of your soul. Don't let that happen. That would be a tragedy. So he says in in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, So therefore, take care, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to turn away from the living God. So in other words, just as believing the gospel is the way that you enter into God's rest, unbelieving is the thing which will keep you from experiencing God's rest. What is unbelief? I like how one writer put it. He said this, unbelief is not the inability to understand. Unbelief is the unwillingness to trust. 
It's not the intellect that's in question. You might say, well, sometimes I struggle with doubts. Of course you do. All of us struggle with doubts. That's inherent to what it means to have faith. Is that of course there are doubts. But see, unbelief is when you, when you go to the point of the will and you say, I'm not willing. I'm not willing to bow my knee before God. I will be my own Lord and Master. That's why he says in verse 13, but exhort each other every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's interesting, right? The deceitfulness of sin. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that for some people, what they call unbelief isn't doubt. What they call unbelief is something in their life which they knew, if I became a Christian, this thing I'm into isn't pleasing to God and I would have to give it up and I I don't really want to give it up. And so what they do instead is that they're hard in their heart against God. I've heard it said, and in, in my experience, I found this to be true, that most people who reject Jesus don't reject him for intellectual reasons. They reject him for personal reasons. That's what he's talking about here. And so the writer is pleading with us that we would strive to make sure that we enter into this rest, that we don't miss out on this great salvation in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we strive to enter into this rest? Well, the answer is found over and over. I told you four times he repeats it in this section. He says this, Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear God's voice, if God is speaking to you today, then don't ignore it. Don't put it off. If God is speaking to you, you need to respond. The word today is used three times in this section. There's an urgency. There's, a, there's an inherent urgency in this because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. That's too great of a risk for you to take to put this off. If God is speaking to you today, you need to respond. Don't harden your heart. Don't put it off. And here's why he says, and I'll finish with this. He says at the end of chapter four, because the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to your very core. It gets right down to the root of your thoughts and intentions. And no creature can hide from his sight. But we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a really interesting verse when it comes to talking about the word of God. But I want you to see that that's not meant to be particularly comforting. Quite the opposite, actually. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying that nothing is hidden from God's sight. God sees everything. And not only what you do, he also sees the thoughts. He sees the dark places that nobody, that never reach the surface. He sees it all. And one day, you are going to have to give an account to him. And here's the deal. Either you will be found in Christ, in which case Jesus has taken all of the judgment For every wrong that you have done in thought, word, or deed, or you will be on your own to face that judgment yourself. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus suffered the restlessness of judgment on your behalf, the restlessness of separation from God on your behalf so that you can have the rest of knowing that God loves you and accepts you and that your sins have been forgiven. Can you even begin to imagine how much love he has for you, that he was willing to do that for you. So listen, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God speaking to you and calling you, don't harden your heart. Respond to him. Receive his love and grace. Believe the gospel and enter into the rest that he has prepared for you.
Amen? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for the rest that you have given us through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you took our place and you suffered restlessness on our behalf so that we could have rest, the deep rest of the soul, which is found in and through Jesus and what he's done for us. So, Lord, today I pray for anybody here who says, yeah, this is speaking to me. Lord, I pray for all of us who hear your word today that we wouldn't harden our hearts, but that we would respond. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.